You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Jonah, and get ready to study God's Word in a series we're calling A Chasing God and a Chastened Prophet. It's great to see you. It's great to be joined by all the folks all around our campuses. We want to jump right into this today. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We're going to look at this entire chapter today. Those of you who are kind of new or uh, have, have not been to church, I mean, it's summer, so like once every, what, eight, nine weeks you come to church. I'm kidding. Um, So if you haven't been around for a little bit, we're in the midst of this uh, study of Jonah. Uh, The book of Jonah should be actually read in one sitting, and so it's a little bit weird when uh, we take it in pieces like this, but it's kind of what we have to do in order to give you kind of the full flavor of what the thing is all about. This chapter is particularly interesting, Jonah chapter 3, in that it it talks about revival. Uh, That's a word that most people don't really know a whole lot about because we haven't really experienced a lot of those kinds of things in the Christian church in the last number of years. There was a time, though, uh, where revival was something that was really, really happening. Some of you might know the name George Whitfield, and a time in the history of the church, actually in the time of the history of the United States, called the First Great Awakening. It happened kind of in the middle of the 1700s. George Whitfield was a British preacher, and he came to the United States, and he came and he, he, he started preaching in the U.S., and crowds followed him like they had never seen. Uh, Whitfield was uh, well-known for his oratory skill, right? He was really good at talking in front of people. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, who uh, you should know, <laughs> or at least the name, Benjamin Franklin uh, was a real fan of his. And at one point, Franklin tried to figure out how large the crowds were that were uh, accompanying Whitfield. And so he walked the lengths. Whitfield would go out in the middle of a, of a field and he would put a, a box on the ground, oftentimes a box that was once filled with soap. So a soap box. And he would stand on top of the soap box and he'd preach. This is where, by the way, we get that language from, right? Don't you stand up top on your soap box and preach to me. That's from the first great awakening. Because the crowds that he had were so large, they couldn't usually fit in, in tents. They couldn't usually fit in buildings or anything. And so Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, one time tried to figure out how many people were coming to Whitfield's sermons. And so while everybody was gathering, he, Franklin, uh, being the little mathematician he was, he started walking out toward the edge of the crowd, turned around to see if he could hear Whitfield from a certain distance. He'd go to the edge of the crowd all around, and he realized that there were about 20 to 30,000 people there, according to his estimates. And he was a skeptic, right? He didn't believe the stuff that Whitfield was preaching about, but he loved hearing Whitfield preach because he was just so, just so good at it. He actually gave money, Franklin did, to certain, uh, to certain uh, 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 missions ideas that Whitfield had because he was so moved by the guy. This guy, Nathan Cole, was a farmer and he tried to explain one time uh, what it was like if Whitfield came to your town. So here's what, he, here's what he wrote when George Whitfield came to his town. This is what he wrote for those who came after him, people like us to get a feeling for what it was like. He said, when I heard that Mr. Whitfield was coming to preach in Middletown, so he's writing this in 1741, I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool, ran home to my wife and told her to hurry. My wife and I rode my horse as fast as I thought the horse could bear. And when we neared Middletown, I I heard a noise like a low rumbling thunder And soon saw it was the noise of horses' feet. As I came closer, it seemed like a steady stream of horses and their riders, all of a lather and foam with sweat, their breath rolling out of their nostrils with every jump. Every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. It It made me tremble to see the sight, how the world was in a struggle to hear Whitfield. 
When we got to the meeting house, there were about three or 4,000 people already assembled. I turned and I looked back and the land and the banks of the river looked black with people and horses along the, la- the 12 miles that I could see down the riverbank. Now he's probably exaggerating a little bit, but those people who wrote about Whitfield's gatherings echo a lot of that. Can you imagine uh, having somebody preach and have that many people from the town just hear that the guy's going to be there and they go and preach? Not only, listen, Whitfield wasn't doing anything. He wasn't pulling rabbits out of hats. There was no like abracadabra healed and everyone went over. Nothing like that at all. The man would stand up and he would preach the Bible to people. Tens of thousands of people would come. The people who didn't come and didn't like this attention that he was getting, and there were some, there were always some mockers and skeptics. And so some of the people decided, look, why don't we, we got to kind of dispel the attention that Whitfield is getting. And so there was a group of guys who used to follow him around and uh, Whit- Whitfield would put his soapbox down. He'd stand up in the middle of the field and he'd start preaching and these guys would go over a distance over to the side and they would put their soapbox down and they would stand up and they would just repeat everything that Whitfield said, right? So Whitfield says, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Repent and believe, repent and believe. Listen, don't you dare get any ideas about this. Do you understand me? You can imagine sitting there and of course it distracts the people who are listening to Whitfield and they're mocking him. One of the great stories, though, is that one of the guys who was following Whitfield around all these different places was standing up, actually mocking Whitfield, you know. Come to faith in Jesus. He loves you. And right in the middle of his mockery, he just stopped and realized what he was saying and said, I believe. What do you call that? Like, what do you, when something like that happens, When the Spirit of God is so palpable that his presence overwhelms a group of people so that their hearts are turned back to the living God. What was the word's revival? Some of you might have heard this term just recently. There was uh, this last year, Asbury Seminary. uh, It happened supposedly there. There was a prayer meeting they got together and all of a sudden the prayer meeting started lasting more than one day and then another day and another day and another day and eventually people were lining up down the street coming from all over the country to go and to experience what was going on at Asbury. People were repenting of their sins and they were lying prostrate on the floor before God. Online there was a big debate. Is this a real revival or not? And you say, well what 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 makes a real revival? And the answer is, well, was there genuine repentance? You know, a genuine turning around? Because you can have all the feelings, right? I can manipulate you into the feelings. Just give me enough smoke and light and time. I can make you cry. And after long enough, you're just so tired. I'm like, you're just like, okay, I freaking repent. <laughs> like, let me go home. There's, there's ways to manipulate. So the question then becomes, well, is, is, was it real? Is it not real? And you can make your own mind up about that. But Whitfield's was real. And Jonah 3 was real. Nineveh was real. And that's what this passage is, is really about. And in it, we learn, some certain, we learn some things about genuine repentance and genuine revival, what it looks like when God actually comes and visits a group of people and they turn their hearts toward Christ. So look, I, I'm gonna point out three things in this passage that I think we learn about repentance. Um, here's the first. Repentance is something God brings. God brings Repentance. It's not something that, genuine repentance is not something I can manipulate you into. It's not something that we, I can do through like a turn of phrase. It's, it's not something that if there's a silver bullet to, right? If I just said the right words, I could get you guys to believe, right? 
It's something that God himself brings. Let me show you what I mean. Jonah, chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Whoa, there was a first time? Yeah, okay, so if you've been missing this series, you came on the right day. Here's what happened. At the very beginning of this book, uh, Jonah's just, he's a prophet of God, you know, like a faithful prophet of God. He goes and he receives messages from the Lord and he, he goes and he preaches those messages. The prophets in Israel almost always preach their messages to the people of Israel. The Lord would call a prophet and he'd send the prophet to the people of Israel to proclaim that they need to repent and then they would repent and then the Lord would bring days of blessing and then they'd fall away and then the Lord would send a prophet. See how it goes? Rarely, if ever, does God send a prophet to the enemies of Israel. Jonah's a prophet of God and he's sitting in Jerusalem living the life. The Lord has used him in the past to preach repentance to the people of Israel and they've turned around and the Lord has shown success. So he's, he's well-known, well-respected, you know? He's an important dude. And the Lord comes to him and says, look, uh, Jonah, I want you to arise and I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, listen, before we get too far here, I need to explain a couple things about Nineveh. Nineveh, uh, Nineveh was not a great place to go if you're a Jewish man, okay? It was run by the, the Assyrians. It was one of the major cities of Syria, and the Assyrian kings were well known for their brutality. And uh, brutality mostly pointed at people who were not Assyrian. But listen, if you were an Assyrian and you decided to stand up against your king, he would skin you alive. And then he would take your, your skin and he would lay it out on the streets so people could see Hey, that used to be Joe. So if you're thinking at all about standing up against me, have a good look at Joe. And if you were an enemy of the Assyrians and the Assyrians beat you in battle, which they almost always did, the king would do some pretty nasty things to you. Here's the way that James Bruckner, one commentator on the book of Jonah said, he said, one Assyrian king boasted. He boasted a few years before Jonah's time. Here's what he said. I flayed, right? So skin to life. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. I burnt, here's his boast. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I lit them on fire. I captured many troops alive, and while they were alive, I cut off some, some of their arms and hands. I, I cut off others' noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops, and I hung their heads on trees around the city. We said that if you came into the king of Assyria's uh, palace, there were literal eyeballs, noses, ears, skulls, heads on sticks, all meant to convey to you, don't mess with me. Make sure you ask the right question or your head might end up being on this pole. There are some actually who said that the Assyrians were basically the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. So in your mind, you gotta put yourself in Jonah's position. He's like, okay, Go to Nineveh, and he's connecting the dots, thinking, wait a minute, Nineveh's like Berlin of 1937. You, wait, you want me to go to the little guy with the mustache, with the high, you want me to go to that guy and preach what? Yeah, I want you to go over there, I want you to preach. What do you think, do you think he's gonna listen? Do you think Hitler's gonna listen in 1937? He didn't listen to anybody else. So there's Jonah, Go to Nineveh, rise, go to Nineveh and preach against them. For the evil has come up before me. And Jonah makes a business decision. I'm going to Tarshish. You say, where? Okay, so Nineveh's, Israel, Nineveh's over here. Uh, Tarshish is like, it's kind of over there in Rockford, okay? It, it's, it's a long, long way away. So he goes down to the port, he gets on a boat, and he takes off, and he starts sailing. 
He probably actually rented the entire boat because those guys didn't want to go all the way to Tarshish, but they, he rents the entire boat. They go and they start sailing <clears throat> and he thinks, ha ha, I've gotten away from the living God. I'm going to go take a nap. He goes in the, the front of the boat, he lies down and the Lord sends a storm. That's the way the language works. The Lord sends a storm. And the storm goes down and beats the snot out of the boat and these sailors who've lived their whole lives on the sea are scared to death of what's going to happen. They're freaking out. It's all over. They go downstairs. They find Jonah asleep. They say, what are you doing? Call out to your God. Which, of course, at that moment should, should indicate that Jonah should call out to his God. What does he do? He doesn't call out to his God. Because he's like, if I call out to the God, he's going to know where I am. So he goes upstairs. And he's standing on the deck. And the boat's rocking and rolling. And these guys are praying to their gods. And... They say, this must be one of our fault. And Jonah's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. And so they cast lots to find out who it is. Oh, I'm gonna put your name on this one, name on this one, shake up the bottle and boom, out comes Jonah. And they're like, what have you done? He's like, well, I might've irritated the living God who made the world. You know, the sea and everything in it. So they're like, oh my goodness. They still, they don't wanna throw him over because that's mean. And so they start trying to row back to the... Nah, that's not working. So they're finally like, dude, I'm sorry. So they chuck him overboard. And Jonah is sinking. He says, I'm sinking to the bottom. And then the Lord sends a fish. See, this is a crazy part of this whole story is that Jonah, God is seen as this massive sovereign king who sends storms and he sends fish and everything obeys him. All of the stuff obeys him except for Jonah. The fish obeys him. It's like, oh, okay, I'll go pick that guy up. And he puts him in his mouth, tastes him for a while, and he carries him around. And Jonah's in the fish, and he, and he prays a prayer, which is probably an appropriate thing to do while you're in a fish for three days, you know? What are you going to do? I don't have my phone, so I'm praying. So there you are. He's praying. And when he prays, listen, he doesn't pray for salvation. He prays about the salvation he's received. He says, oh, thank you, God, for saving me. I was about to die, and you sent this thing, and you... Pick me up. Thank you, God, that you have mercy and grace on people like me. So he receives the grace of God. Uh, the, God says, all right, fish, spit him up over there. Fish is like, all right, and he spits him up over on the beach. And there's Jonah sitting on the beach having experienced the grace of God and being saved, even though he ran dead away from the God who called him. He's been graced upon grace upon grace. And then the Lord, the word came to Jonah the second time saying exactly what it said the first time. Arise, go to Nineveh. Hitler's waiting, man. That great city and, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. Whew. Good. Well, this is sorted. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was three days journey in breadth. This probably meant that it's going to take three days for, Nona, uh, for Jonah to, to preach to all the areas in the city. Is it big enough that he's going to actually have to spend lots of time in the city? So the expectation you have at this point is that Jonah's going to get there and he's going to spend Three full days doing this. And at the end of three full days, we're going to see what, is, what they do. But Jonah began to go in the city. He just started. He's going a day's journey. Just one day. is right at the beginning of everything that he's done. And he called out. Okay, this is a great sermon. But it's not. This is the worst sermon in the entire Bible. It's It's terrible. Okay, you guys ever heard about hellfire and brimstone sermons? Even the hellfire and brimstone sermons might make a mention of the grace of God at the very end of it. Be like, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. I mean, unless you repent. Here's Noah's, or here's Jonah's. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it? Yeah, you're going to get it. Not only are you going to get it, um, this word overthrown is the same word that was used, uh, exact same word that was used when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown. 
he, he's picking up the same language. You guys remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember that fire from heaven? Yeah, get ready. Lord's gonna make some s'mores here soon and you're gonna be in them. Unless what? Unless nothing, you're getting it. I'm going up on the hill, I'm gonna watch, it's gonna be great. Listen, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I know the rest of this story, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of hint, which of course most of you know it too. They believe him. That's, that's the sermon that the Lord uses to move the hearts of thousands. Which means, it's not a prophet's or preacher's words, intentions, or methods that save people. It's God who saves them. Now listen, God might use intentions, methods, silver bullets to save people, but at the end of the day, God is the one who is doing the work. The methods he chooses are his business. Now I'm saying this because it's really important for you and me to hear that because most of us in our relationships with our friends and neighbors and family who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what we are looking for is a silver bullet. We are looking for some special technique that if we employ it, they will actually listen. We read books about it. How is it that people are coming to faith in this modern world? How can I preach the gospel in this particular way? Now I'm not I'm not even dismissing that. Go for it. It's called contextualization. It's a really noble thing to do, right? You're going to preach the gospel differently to people in Chicagoland than you are going to be to people in Kenya probably these days. But there is an attitude among most of us that, look, if I can just cotton on to the exact right thing to say in the exact right way, then everyone is going to believe. So the goal of our church is to figure out what that thing is. And then when we have people come to faith in Christ in our church, we write books about that thing. And we tell everybody, do this thing. And they do that thing. And they're like, silver bullet. Was it though? Is there a silver bullet? No, God's the one who saves. I mean, guys, you, you find this throughout the Bible. <laughs> Pretty consistent. Just listen to the language that's used about how it is that people come to repentance or are saved. So, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant, Timothy, must not be quarrelsome. So, Timothy's dealing with a bunch of false teachers and people who are really irritating the church. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. To, to everyone, well, what kind of people? He needs to be able to teach, patiently enduring evil, evil everyone's, correcting his opponents, right? Evil everyone's who are his opponents. He needs to correct them with gentleness. See, God may perhaps, what? Grant them repentance. If I'm writing that, I'm saying uh, correct his opponents with gentleness because maybe they'll repent, right? Because it's like it's in their hands. But actually, no, the only way it gets into their hands is if God grants them repentance. So salvation is of the Lord. As Jonah says while he's in the fish, salvation belongs to the Lord, Acts 16, Paul goes down to a riverside. He's going to preach the gospel to the people in Philippi. There's a bunch of ladies there. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. This means she basically worked for Gucci. All right, she, she made really high-end stuff that the really wealthy want. So important designer. She was a worshiper of God. Now, that doesn't mean that she was a Christian or a believer. She was on the outskirts of the Jewish community, was interested in Yahweh. Paul preaches to her, and the Lord opened her heart. 
to pay attention to what was said by Paul. See, the only way that somebody pays attention to what is said by you is if the Lord opens their heart. The only way that somebody repents is if God grants them repentance. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's supposed to encourage you. Some of you are like, oh no, that's terrible. No, it's awesome. It means it's not completely up to you. Isn't that great? You don't have to come up with some really snazzy presentation and put it on pro presenter and have lights and, and smoke everywhere and you emerge out of the mist and say, come to Jesus. And you don't have to do this. You don't. Well, what if God uses that? Fine, God can use that and donkeys and all sorts of stuff to bring people to Jesus. It doesn't mean we need to write a book about it. What it means is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And in every one of the situations that you face with your loved ones, with your friends, this provides great hope because God can overcome even the Ninevites, even Hitler, even Paul on his road to Damascus ready to kill all the Christians. He can overcome anybody. There's this great, great story. Since I'm talking a little bit about church history today, George Whitfield, if you were to rate the best English language preachers in the history of the world, George Whitfield would probably be pretty close to the top, but right near him would be Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Baptist preacher in England for lots and lots of years. Here's the way that Charles Spurgeon describes his conversion. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair even now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship, right? So he's a guy who would spend some time in church, but he did not believe. When I could go no further, I turned down a course. So he's trying to go to a place of worship, but he couldn't get to his own church. And so when I could go no further, I turned down a court and I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel, right? The dumpy little church that you drive by all the time, that one. In that chapel, there may be a dozen or 15 people. The minister didn't come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, uh, something of that sort, he went into the pulpit to preach because somebody's got to preach, right? And there's only 15 people there, so I don't know. Guess it's my turn, he thinks. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He, he began this way. My dear friends, uh, this is a very simple text indeed. It, it says, look. Now, that doesn't take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You, you may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. Anyone can look. A child can look. This is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. I said he, many of you are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again, look unto me, I ascend, I am sitting at the Father's right hand, oh, look to me, look to me. When he had gotten about that length and managed to spin out about 10 minutes of this, he was at the length of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery, meaning I was sitting there in the congregation, I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He said this, looking right at me. Young man, you, you look very miserable. Well, I, I did, but I'd not been accustomed to having remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. 
he continued, and you'll always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. I'd make a great primitive Methodist. I would love that. (laughs) And there and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Nobody knows the name of this guy. Do you know that? You can't pick up a book and read about this guy. Do you know who had more impact on the English-speaking world than any other preachers like Spurgeon? And yet the guy who brought him to faith in Christ, we don't even know him. Wouldn't you like to know him? The answer is, well, probably not, because it doesn't really matter who he was. It matters who God was who saved him. Lord can use any act of obedience in speaking the word of God to people. He can use any prayer, any weak need, barely audible, stupidly worded, presentation of the good news to save people because it's his work. Success then, listen, success is not in bringing people to faith in Christ, as successful as that might sound. Success for Christian brothers and sisters is the proclamation of the word that brings people to faith in Jesus Christ. So, God brings repentance. Second, that repentance that God brings, it produces evidence. It's, it's, it's not just words. Like you can see the repentance that God brings as opposed to the repentance that kind of is just something that people do because they've been around the church for a long time and they know the word repent and they know that there's certain ways that you're supposed to repent. So you get your little tick box thing and you're gonna tick off all the things that are repentance and at the end you're like, good deal, I repented. Uh, note what happens here. Jonah 3, verse 6. Uh, so he preaches this horrible sermon. On the first day of his three-day preaching journey, he starts, he preaches the sermon one time. 40 days and you're all dead. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. And they put on sackcloth, uh, this kind of stuff, fasting and sackcloth. It was commanded of God, if you're, really gonna fa- if you're really gonna repent, this was the way that you did this in the Old Testament. And the reason you put on sackcloth, like a potato bag, you know, those kind of scritchy material, you put that on because you wanted the outside of your body to match the inside, right? You, you wanted to feel outwardly or express outwardly what you were actually experiencing inwardly. This is why people in the ancient world or even the Middle East today, they wail when one of their family members died because the idea is I want you to hear and see what's going on in me. They're not like us. We're like, you know, stiff upper lip. Let's just keep going on. How are you? I'm good. No, how are you? Ah! That's how I am because inside I'm just, I'm a mess. So they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I mean, the highest height, the king, as we'll see, all the way down to like the lowest low. You say lowest low person? No, like the animals. No, watch. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, meaning he stepped off of his throne, removed his robe. So he's putting aside all of his royal, you know, accoutrement. I mean, he's all the stuff that shows that he's a king. He lays it all to the side and he covers himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. Not something kings do. Remember, who's this king? Hitler does this. And he issued a proclamation 
this wicked guy. He issues a proclamation and he published it throughout Nineveh. And so Jonah doesn't have to preach anymore, guys, because the king decided that he'd become the preacher. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste any. We're all fasting, everyone. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. The beasts are sackcloth. Put your dog in the potato sack, right? And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence. Notice, we know what's wrong. We know what we've done. We're violent. Let us turn from the violence that is in his hands, who knows, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He may. You know, most commentators, when they come across this passage, you're like, all right, so here in the Bible is a great example of what genuine repentance looks like. Now, these people turn to Jesus, turn to God in such a way that it actually is the legit thing. Because God can read the heart and he relents in the end. So if you wanna know what genuine repentance looks like, look to the Ninevites. And what you find when you get there is a few things. Three things, in fact. The first thing is that the people believed God. In other words, they accepted what it was that the Lord had to say about them and their sin. The Lord, the Lord Jonah's like, you're gonna, you're gonna get it. And they know that it's because of their evil and wickedness and they say, yes, that's true. We probably should be getting it because of these things. We agree. We agree. They didn't make excuses. Do you see any excuses in here? Does the king of Nineveh go, well, you know, okay, yeah, you're right, but you should beat my wife. You know, it, hey, I can't be held responsible for all of these things because you don't know my upbringing. I can't be held responsible for all of these things because there was a series of circumstances that led to these moments of me flaying people. Right, when I was a kid, I thought flaying stuff was great. Uh, there was an article I came across a number of years ago that actually identified the three largest kinds of excuses. Now, I don't know if these, these have kind of overlap on each other in my opinion, but these are the three large excuses that this psychologist, after years of practice, said that he had heard in his practice. Number one, there's outright denial, or as he called it, the politician's choice, right? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Wait a minute, but we have you actually on video saying, you, saying that you did. No, nope, that wasn't me. Somebody else, right? Somebody stood in my place and put on a mask that looked just like me and said that thing. Or I don't even remember any of that kind of thing. I was probably drunk. The guy before me did it. Right? It's outright denial. You've, you've confronted somebody before when it comes to something that they have done. And they're like, that's not true at all. That didn't happen at all. And you're like, yes, but we were both actually there. I don't recall it at all. Seriously, do I have to have a video camera on our lives at all times? You know that you did it. Nope, didn't happen. Didn't happen. Second, there's the blame-shifting approach, which is, you know, Adam and Eve's desire. That's their approach, right? The Lord comes to them in the garden and says, hey, what did you do, what did you do here, Adam? And Adam's like, oh, come on, man. It was the woman who you put here with me. One of you used to be faulted, but not me. I mean, yes, I did the thing, but the thing I did was done because of her and you. And Eve's like, not me, it's the snake. Snakes, right? The shifting of the blame uh, constantly. We blame our spouse, our coworker, the dog. Sorry. An inanimate object sometimes. There's police reports. No, honestly, there are police reports that have been shared with me in the past by guys who are in the, in the police force where people have claimed, listen, it wasn't my fault that I crashed into the tree. The tree emerged out of nowhere and jumped right in front of me. Honestly, that's what the honest report is. 
It's not my fault. It's that, it's that thing's fault. He did it. The last one is the yes, but. Okay, I did it. I did it. But there are a series of circumstances that led to me doing it. It's not necessarily somebody else's fault. It's just all of the circumstances around my, my background. This is probably the most popular one these days. Listen, I did it, but let me explain to you why I did it. When I was a very young child, I dreamed about owning, a, you know, a TV that size. So when I saw it in the store, I was overwhelmed. And I grabbed it and ran. You had my childhood, wanted a TV like that. What was I supposed to do? You ever heard these before? I have. Coming right out of this mouth. <laughs> like, that's my wife. I'm really good at these ones. I'm great at all of them. But true, listen, true repentance is, is excuseless. There might be reasons why it is that that was done. The thing that you did was done. But in a moment of true repentance, you're not, you're not relying on the excuse. You're not trying to defend yourself. You're like, actually, what you're saying about me is right. And later we can talk about some of the reasons that led into this kind of thing that maybe were explanations of what it is that I did. But I got to tell you, what I did, I chose to do, and I'm wrong. I was wrong. So they believed God, they accepted what he said. And they called, secondly, a fast and put on sackcloth. This is mourning, right? This is sorrow. The idea is, look, everybody, we need to express outwardly what's going on inwardly. What's going on inwardly? Sorrow, grating, disruption. I don't think that there can be genuine repentance without some kind of sorrow for the sin committed. I really don't. I, I, I know that that sorrow might come later, but I don't see how you're ever going to change your actions if you don't feel bad about doing the actions. I just, I just don't see how that's going to happen. Even the animals put on sackcloth. They don't eat. They don't drink. This is like deep, deep mourning. And you guys, listen, every parent in the room knows that there's a difference between deep mourning and perfunctory mourning. Yes? Like, like genuine sorrow and not really sorrow. You know, the kids are in the back seat and they're punching each other and you say, Johnny, you need to apologize to your sister. And he says, sorry. <laughs> and you're tired. You know it's not real, but you're tired and you're like, at least he stopped hitting her. And so you go home. But you know it's not real. And then there's the deep kind of sorrow. When I was 10 years old, I was so angry with my sister, so mad. We were one year apart, and she just riled me up, and I was so mad at her. I remember walking out of my room, looking at the wall across from my room, and taking my foot and just kicking it. I was thinking, I'm just going to kick the wall. Well, my foot went straight through the wall. Three days earlier, my parents had listed the house for sale, and I had just kicked a hole through the for sale house. And I heard, I could see down the hallway was my parents' room. And I, could, I heard my father say, what was that? And like the fear of God gripped me. And I pulled my foot out and I, I was like, and I ran directly to him. <laughs> no kidding. And I, I laid down on the ground and I clutched his feet. And I said to him, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so, which is not something you want your kids to ever say to you because you're like, oh, great. What happened? My mom's down the hallway. He kicked out all through the, the boy kicked all through the wall. Yeah, well, that's, that's genuine sorrow, right? I mean, like you can, I can't believe what I've just done. I can't believe what I've just done. You know, so many religious people are really good at the not genuine sorrow thing, right? They just sort of, they know repentance is something that they're supposed to do. And so they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. But they, there's no feeling in it. There's no sense of like, hey, yeah, this was genuinely wrong. And look at the people I hurt by doing it. I just, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. Lord, I'm sorry. So you have agreement and then you have sorrow, agreement with God and you have sorrow. And then 
And then the word of the Lord keeps the king of Nineveh. He rose from his throne, changed his clothes. He issued a proclamation. Nobody gets to taste anything. Let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil way. Or in other words, uh, action. See, everything before this is like feelings and words, but genuine action. Because so much repentance, so much of our repentance is box ticking, right? We go and we see the priest and we sit down and we say, let me give you all my confessions. Well, I did this and this and this and this, right? Go out and say 15 Hail Marys and five Our Fathers and you're good. Cool. Blah, 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 blah. Woo, clean. Go do it again, right? That's, that's repentance because you, it's a box ticking kind of thing. It's a religious practice. The Lord gives us a list of things we ought to do. We need to pray and we need to do it in this order. And then at the end, we're, we're gonna be good. Is that genuine repentance? Well, no, of course it's not genuine repentance. Little kid repentance is what it is. It's fake. Real repentance actually is followed up by doing something in line with the sorrow that you felt. Doing something. This actually is really interesting. There's a language in the scriptures that actually talk about this, right? It's called the fruit of repentance. There needs to be fruit of repentance. To know that the tree is actually a real repentance tree. There's this passage in Isaiah 58 where the people of Israel are like, yeah, we've done wrong. We're going to do the repenting. And the repenting in this case is the fasting. We know we're supposed to fast. Okay? And they fast. And then the Lord hasn't, you know, hasn't helped them. Uh, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why, why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Lord, I don't get it. We did the stuff. We ticked the box. Why have... Why have you not forgiven us? Uh, and here's the Lord. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and, and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Do, I, do you hear what he's saying? Listen, you, I get it. You guys think that by doing the fasting, I'm gonna be really cool, but the fasting is not accompanied by action. Genuine repentance is followed by action. Is your action always going to be perfect? No. Does that mean that if you ever do that act again, it didn't really mean it when you repented? Nope. You can repent over and over and over and feel sorrow over and over and over again for something, but genuine repentance is sorrowful and leads to a decision. I am not going to go this way. I'm going to go this way. Right, so here's the last part of this passage then. I said there were three things that we learn about repentance. The first is that God brings it. The second is that repentance produces evidence. And here's the final one. The repentance that's given by God leads to relenting of harm by God. Guys, the end of this passage is great. When God saw what they did, the Nazis, what God saw that the Nazis did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Because here's the thing about God. He is prone to fits of compassion. Philip Yancey wrote a wonderful book years and years and years ago called What's So Amazing About Grace. In it, he tells a story about a pastor friend of his that I always like to read to people pretty regularly from the pulpit to remind them of what the God that they worship is like. He wrote, not long ago, I heard from a pastor friend who was battling with his 15-year-old daughter. He knew she was using birth control and several nights she had not bothered to come home at all. The parents had tried various forms of punishment to no avail. The daughter lied to them, deceived them, found a way to turn the tables on them. It's your fault for being so strict. My friend told me, I remember standing before the plate glass lit window in my living room, staring out into the darkness, waiting for her to come home. I felt such rage. I wanted to be like the father of the prodigal son who, who runs to welcome 
his wicked son home, and yet I was furious with her for the way that she would manipulate us and twist the knife to hurt us. And of course, she was hurting herself more than, any, than anyone else. And yet I have to tell you, when my daughter came home that night, or rather the next morning, I wanted nothing in the world so much as to take her in my arms, to love her, to tell her I wanted the best for her. I was a helpless, lovesick father. If you've heard me preach long enough, one of the things you'll notice is lots of times at the end of sermons, I will point out that repentance is something we ought to do. We should run toward God because of what he's shown us in our wickedness. We ought to run toward God because the God we run to is the one who is the prodigal's father, who scans the horizon and is just waiting for a small little turn from those who have run away from him to come home. The entire book of Jonah, listen very clearly, the entire book of Jonah, all of these sermons are gonna end in the same place. You know what they're about? It's all about turning back to the living God who wants your best, who has provided for you in all the ways and is prone to fits of compassion. So many of you are walking, so many of all of you are walking in directions that we know are going to lead to devastation in our own lives and we know are destroying our relationship with God and we know are killing the relationships we have with everybody else. We keep doing it because we think it's the best way. But man, it's Tarshish. And God brings us to church repeatedly and he says, don't you want something better than this? Yeah, but if I come back to you, what's going to happen? Well, probably I'm going to relent, right? Because I'm prone to fits of compassion like that. I'm a helpless, lovesick father. So God is ready to relent. If you and I are ready to repent, So do you want to repent? Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for the constant invitation that is throughout the scriptures of calling your people back to you. <laughs> it's an act of grace. You don't need to call us back. You do. You keep calling us back. And what we'll find, Father, is not that, you know, these passages are about a God who wants to like, Sovereign sends storms and sends fish and everything obeys you. Everything obeys you. You can do whatever it is that you want. You save the Nineveh. You can do whatever it is that you want. You're all powerful, almighty. And yet you're also this God who's so lovesick that he just constantly comes after us and repeatedly comes after us. Lord, would you do a great work in our hearts? Like Lydia, would you open our ears, our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say that we might find fullness of life in you? Help our hearts today to reflect the sunshine that shines down on our faces because we're free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.